I'm Haley. And I'm Emma. And welcome to This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes play by play to prove that every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, all's well that ends well. So fittingly for the title of this play, um, <laughs> we had some technical issues with the record. You've been that's been a theme these past couple weeks. Apologies yeah. for that. Um, but all's well that ends well. Here we are, and you are listening to this. So clearly, it worked. All's well that ends well. No longer on Zoom, but recording on Skype as an experiment, like we're in a long distance relationship in 2009. <laughs> and aren't we? And we are in a way. <laughs> Um, also, just while we're apologizing for things up front, my dog's here and really antsy, so she's gonna make some cameos probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dog's invested in what she they is. About all's well that ends well, which we don't know. We don't know, but we're gonna find out. Um, yeah, this play is one that I really vacillate between, like reading it. You know, I there's certain like scenes and speeches where I'm like, oh, this has so much promise, and then mm-hmm. by the end, I'm always just like, eh. <laughs> um. So it's not one that I have like a lot of a relationship with because it is so rarely done and so rarely engaged with because it's kind of odd and maybe not very good. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a funny one for me because I think it is the only one. So I have worked on it, not in a full production, but I directed a workshop of it at the Scranton Shakespeare Festival in July. Um, And it was sort of meant to be a staged reading that ended up being a pretty full-on on-its-feet workshop, and we had about 72 hours. And um, I think it's the only play that I've worked on but never seen. Oh, wow. I just realized, which is actually really interesting. I think it's the only one that, yeah, that I've worked on that I've never also seen a production of, which is pretty insane. So my my only experience of it on its feet is through myself. Like my own, <laughs> my own, you know, like vision of it, which is really interesting. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not a play that I had ever really, um, yeah, that I had concrete feelings about until I worked on it. But then I suddenly developed much more affection for it than I thought I was going to. And I also even briefly considered focusing on it for a commission project that I currently have. I ultimately leaned away from that, but there's a lot of weirdness in it that I felt was compelling. Yeah, I have seen it once at a company in Portland um, that was like a production that I feel like on the on paper kind of did everything right. Like, yeah. we'll, we'll do a plot summary because I suspect a lot of people aren't going to sort of know the characters just as to reference. But like, the Helena was extremely charming. The Perlis was very funny. Um, you know, it had like really sort of dynamic design. It made a lot of the sort of changing locations. Um, mm-hmm. There was like a bit with like French and Italian flags that was really like fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, when I got to the end of the play, I was just mad. Like, mm-hmm. the, the final, like, as <laughs> my experience with a lot of Shakespeare plays, <laughs> as I work on The Merchant of Venice, um, <laughs> it's like, I'm, like, trucking along, and then I get to the last, like, seat, and I'm just like, ugh. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I feel about this play. Um, and maybe we can just dive right into a plot summary yeah. to think about why. Um, so, All's Well That Ends Well is the story of um, a young lady named Helena, who is the ward to the Countess of Rosillian or Rosillon? I always forget which one it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, the Countess, uh, who is a Countess, and she has been raised <laughs> alongside a young man named Bertram, who she is in love with. 
secretly. Um, Bertram gets called away to attend the court of the King of France, and Helena is very sad because she's in love with him and doesn't want him to go away. Countess realizes that she's in love and is like very supportive of their relationship. Um, and it turns out the King of France is dying and Helena's dad was a very famous doctor and he left her some like semi-mystical medicines. So she's like, I'm gonna go to the court and cure the king. And in as a reward for this, I, she says to the king, like, I want to marry whoever I want. And the king's like, sounds good, let's do it. Um, so naturally she wants to marry Bertram. And Bertram is like, ew, no, I hate you. And literally everyone else is like, why? And he's like, she's poor and gross and I hate her. Um, but he sort of capitulates and marries her and then immediately runs away with his friend Parolis, who's a sort of like clown courtier figure um, to go fight in the wars in Italy that they're, you know, having. Um, and he leaves Helena with this very like Scarborough fair, like you'll never be my wife until you get the ring from off my finger and are, you know, pregnant with my child, even though I've never slept with you. Um, bye. And so Helena's like, well, I mean, I really don't want him to be at war. And I feel really guilty that he's like fled the country because of me. So I'm going to get out. I'm going to go on a pilgrimage. Um, and she happens to be on a pilgrimage where Bertram is and decides to seize this opportunity to try and fulfill these impossible tasks by performing a bed trick with the help of a young woman named Diana, who Bertram is trying to sleep with. Um, meanwhile, there's this whole subplot where Bertram and Parolis are at war and Parolis turns out to be like a massive coward and all these soldiers kind of stage excuses to make fun of him. Classic, uh, <laughs> classic style. Um, and then at the end of the day, Helena pretends to be dead. So Bertram goes back to the French court and is like, I'm very sad about this. Uh, can I get married to someone different now? Uh, but then Diana shows up and is like, ha ha, you slept with me. You have to marry me. Um, and then that is in turn revealed to be a bed trick. And he slept with Helena, who is pregnant and has his ring and did all the things. And he's like, oh, OK, I guess I love you. The end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so funny to hear all the kind of plot elements listed back because there is something so, I think that there's something like profoundly spooky and witchy about Helena and there is something mystical going on inside this whole play and like the way that we save the king, all the riddling of like, I, as, as you know, I've said to you before, there's something that feels sort of comically into the woodsy about it all to me in a certain <laughs> kind of way where it's like, you've got to get this and you got to get this and you can't, you know, there's like, there are impossible like fairy tale like riddles set for people and all of the kind of switcheroos and back from the dead. And it's just a really like mythic. But much like Into the Woods, it's not mythic <laughs> in a simple way. It's mythic no. in a like the characters are all a little bit neurotic and like assholes way. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's there's also something really grounded in it in contrast to that. And I think that tension is mm -hmm. sort of in intellectually interesting and like in practice really hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think that's why that is what's compelling about it. And the ways in which I mean, I think we'll probably end up now that we've, you know, plot summaried and kind of outed the bed trick for folks who don't know the play, I'm sure we'll end up talking about measure for measure quite a bit as well, which it feels in so many ways structurally and thematically like a cousin of this play to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, yeah, they're the sort of I mean, basically the two bed trick plays. Yeah. I think there's some other plays where like the idea gets dealt with in like different ways, but these are the two yeah. with the really classic. Uh, we could talk about more about that as well as we go. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think maybe let's just dive in at the 
let's start at the very beginning. <laughs> a very good place to start, uh, as we do. Um, where we, something, so a line that really jumped out at me to sort of connect back to King Lear that we were talking about yeah. last time. Was that last time? Whatever it we was. talked about King Lear. It was Lear. last time. I've repressed it already. Um, and, you know, the sort of frustration that I experience in that play where I think I mentioned of like sort of all the promise that surrounds the idea of Cordelia as a character that never kind of gets fulfilled because she just goes away. Right. Um, and I, there's this really interesting hint of something like that in a way with Helena as well. She's much more present and a much better character than Cordelia is throughout the play. Yeah. But she gets, we both noticed, like introduced in exactly the same way as Hamlet of all yep. people. Yep, almost, um, almost as a quotation. Yeah. Yeah. So she, we're having this scene where Bertram's kind of being sent away uh, to the court of France, and everybody's sad about it. And Helena kind of gets noticed again, a little bit like Edmund gets like, sort of noticed by somebody. And is like, who's this, by the way? And the countess is like, oh, she's my ward. You know, she, her dad was a famous doctor, and then she's like, oh, look, she's crying just at the mention of him. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the countess says no more lest it be rather thought you affect a sorrow than to have and helena interrupts and says i do affect a sorrow indeed but i have it too mm -hmm. and then like two minutes later she turns to the audience is like oh but it's not about my dad it's about bertram and how i'm in love with him yeah. um but there's something so like kind of compelling and unfulfilled about positioning her as this almost like comic hamlet who yeah. Uh, you know, her trappings and suits of woe kind of are just trappings and suits of woe because they're right. not about the thing. Right. I'm, I'm realizing this, like, as I say it, it's like she actually is the thing that Polonius thinks is happening to Hamlet. To, to Hamlet, yeah. Yes, yeah, that, that it isn't grief about the dead parent. It's uh, it's just pure lovesickness. Yeah. Which, yeah, in Helena's case, it is. And it's really funny because she's, like, aware of the way that she's turning the trope on its head, in a sense. Because, like, in the place structurally where Hamlet has too, too solid flesh and turns out to the audience and is like, I'm actually so upset, I wish I could melt. Helena turns to the audience and is like, my great shame that I'm going to confess to you is that I'm not actually sad about the death of my father at all. I just want to bone this guy so hard <laughs> that so it's hard. making me upset. But also, like, her, her, the speech is really about, like, the fact that she assumes she can never have him because he's so high above her and that's what her thing is. Yeah, and that's actually something that I wanted to highlight here at the beginning that I found really interesting as the sort of, like, unifying principle of the first act a little bit is that, yeah. like, the way Helena perceives her love for Bertram as unnatural and wrong and impossible and kind of nobody else except Bertram feels Agrees. that way. Yeah. 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 And because like of that class difference. Class. Yeah. yeah not, she perceives not because they're like essentially step siblings. <laughs> no, well, because they're not. I mean, right. like, they're, I mean, they're definitely not step. To be clear about the relationships. Like, yeah, yeah. Their parents had no relationship at all. Um, I mean, they had friendship, but like, they're not. Yeah. But the, the being raised as a ward thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, though there's this funny bit where the Countess sort of is like, oh, yes, I also fell in love with someone I knew from my very young childhood. It happens <laughs> all the time. Um, but yeah, it's like it's like we plant these seeds of kind of like I'm not I'm not going to argue that like cross class relationships are queer or something like that. But like. Mm -hmm almost in their complete impossibility. And indeed, like she uses the word unnatural a lot and like compares yeah. herself to like a beast and stuff. Um, mm. That yeah, Helena and Bertram both see it that way, but it's also like, 
where did they get that idea? Because nobody, mm-hmm. nobody is reinforcing that from the outside. Yeah, Everyone else lives true. in a meritocracy where they're like, but look at her, she's great. That's true. And it's interesting because the, the funny tonal thing about Oswell, which, you know, will develop and kind of flower as we go along, is everyone here is so emo that I've always felt like there's something about the impossibility of it that is in itself even a little bit attractive to Helena. Like, the erotics of the language that she uses in those first speeches, I mean, like, one of her most famous lines is, the the hind that would be mated by the lion must die for love. And, like, the weird sort of, like, erotic yearning bound up in like I want him but he's so high above me and I can never have him like is so much a part of what she's like doing and investing in yeah it's really interesting so something that we talked about when we were talking about this before Mm -hmm. was the idea that like you you sort of posited that Sorry for recapping like a conversation we previously had, listeners, but you know, whatever. We could have tried to fold it back in organically. Let's just do it this way. Yeah, yeah. You sort of posited that like there's a gender thing happening a bit with Helena in this position as pursuer. And I was a little skeptical of that framing, saying, you know, that I think that's really common in sort of literary traditions that Shakespeare doesn't usually draw upon. And like just because it's unusual in Shakespeare doesn't mean we should necessarily find it unusual broadly writ but now that you framed it like that there actually is something really interesting in putting Helena in the position of the sort of courtly lover yeah who is like you know yearning for mm-hmm. an ultimately like unconsummatable yeah love and I think that is actually kind of an unusual position mm-hmm. for a woman to be in yes because it's really clearly like she's clear about the erotics of it And then when it becomes like, when a possible avenue opens up, which is, you know, the countess is like, go ahead, go to France, do whatever you need. I mean, go to the court, you know, try to find To Paris. Go to Paris. There's something Um, so funny. Speaking of like the fairy tale thing, it's just like, I I find it funny every time that it's like, oh yeah, Paris. Like, it's just like, like, oh yeah, we're in Florence now. Like just the realness of places really makes me laugh. (laughs) I know, me too. And some of the names too. But um, Morgan. Our friend Morgan will come yeah, upon him guy. later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, like the the courtly love position too of like once that possibility opens up, her language is very much like, you know, I have to be worthy of him, which is also mm-hmm. a very kind of like, it's like, Helena, do you think you're a knight? Like, what do you yeah. think is happening here? Yeah, I mean, this was like, I didn't want to bring this up because it will force me to reveal that I have only barely read it, but I did. I was really <laughs> thinking about the fairy queen and like the sort of Britomart figure, the knight of chastity. Sure. Mm. Um, and like that as a model for like what this kind of female quest, right. per, like quester right. uh, could look like again, in like a different sort of literary tradition than the theater. Right. And I'm going to be super straight up about the fact that I have not read the fairy queen. However, like, the idea of a knight of chastity is so interesting because the whole idea of like what is erotic about this relationship seems to be the distance at the beginning of it. And then something happens, which we'll get to pretty quickly, where like when the distance closes and the impossible becomes suddenly possible, everybody kind of freaks out. And yeah. The whole rest of the play is about dealing with that freak out and trying to restore it in like a societally normative way. Yeah. I mean, and like it should be, you know, the the type of chastity that Britomart represents is not Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> sexlessness, but loyalty mm-hmm. to a partner. Like she's right. questing to find her loyalty. guy. I forget his mm. name. Um, so it's like it's the chastity of 
faithfulness and sort of Brilliant. sexual of it's the chastity of monogamy, which is like another important meaning of that word in the time. That's really good and also really useful to this particular relationship in this play, I feel like. So, okay, so just to bring us forward and like marry that idea with another idea. So Parolas, who's a bad man, and also maybe, we'll return a, to him. maybe a source of queerness. We'll talk about Parolas. Yeah. Super interesting, bizarre figure. He's like a gayer Falstaff. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. But pin um, in that. We'll come back to that pin idea. Pin in that. But um, he shows up really early in the play and at his first conversation on stage is with Helena because he rocks up looking for Bertram and or like, you know, they're all going to court, whatever. He's like a Bertram follower, friend, hanger on, et cetera. And they have this long piece of banter about virginity because Parolis, likes, like you do, walks in. And the first thing he says to this young woman is, are you meditating on virginity? And she's like, sure. And then they have this long <laughs> piece of banter. Just one of those classic, like, what do girls think about when they're alone? Yeah. You thinking about virginity? And it's weird because she actually has a very open and, like, frank conversation. Like, she doesn't take the opener as a joke in a way. She's like, okay, let's say I am. Let's ride with that and ask some hypothetical questions. And one of the hypothetical questions she asks to Parolis is, how might one do, sir, to lose it to her own liking? And that really, like, smacked me between the eyes when I was rereading it because I was like, okay, that, in many ways, is the question, is the question of this whole play. Yeah. How, how can you lose your virginity the way that you want? Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, and, like... like <laughs> and we don't know. And we don't know. And it's really interesting. Like, I think there's like a really fascinating like gender dimension to that question too, which we've sort of timed this episode badly because I'm about to start uh, writing about this play for my uh, project Shakespeare and Consent. Um, but I haven't started it yet, so I don't have any answers. <laughs> but I think that that's at the heart of like what I find interesting about it is like what separates a character like Bertram, who is continually criticized for refusing to like Helena from a character in a play we haven't talked about yet, like Olivia, who mm -hmm. is, I think the narrative accepts, like the fact that she doesn't like Orsino is reason enough and she is right. not expected to ever provide any other explanation, except right. for like by Viola. But so that's like the narrative is sort of not upholding that view. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of the characters are. Yeah, and so like, I think that there's something so like, you know, what how does that question apply to Helena who lacks power? And also how does that question apply to Bertram who has yeah. quite a lot of power, but is relentlessly negged for mm -hmm. his comportment mm -hmm. and his choices by like, literally every character. Right. And the question of like, who gets to refuse? Yeah. Because normally, I guess in like romantic patterns, you know, mostly men are kind of, pursuing and women like the power women have is refusal yeah but yeah. but but when it's put on the other foot like I mean because Bertram has a lot a lot more power socially than she does but also it gets taken away by the king yeah. in this particular way and so it's like this is a type of agency that society clearly has led him to believe that he will have and then it gets revoked yeah that's really interesting um I had never quite, yeah, it's sort of, it's like this rug pull. He's like, no, yeah. no, no, I'm supposed to. And yeah. it, it, and it's happening to him in like a lot of dimensions too in these early parts of the play. So he gets called to court and he goes oh, and no. then he gets there and everybody is leaving for these wars in Italy and he gets told he's not allowed to go. Mm -hmm. And so the sort of, that, that that's like the kind of first real, like the first scene we see of him is him being like, well, I guess I have to go to court. And then the next scene is him being like, well, I guess I don't get to go to war, which right. is like, why have you 
brought him here then? Right. What is he here to do? Right, right. Well, let's talk about what he's here to do because that leads us to the emoist character of all the dying king of France. He's who I love. Yeah, he's, dying, he's a funny you guys. One. He's a funny one and he's a weirdo. And Bertram shows up and then there's this like little moment that I can quote a little bit where Bertram shows up and the king of France has what feels to me like a slightly gay waffle about Bertram's dead father where uh, he sees... <laughs> You know, that's a gay waffle. Just a little gay waffle. You know how you see someone and you're like, I knew your dad and man, I loved him so much. And I wish that I was dead with him rather than alive here. Um, <laughs> and then when Bertram's like, let me go to war. And he's like, no. And you're kind of like, do you just want to look at him? Because he reminds you of his dead dad. Maybe. Maybe. But, you know, um, the king, melancholy fellow, wants to keep Bertram around and, I mean, I can actually quote some of that if you want. I mean, one of the things yeah. he says is, Youth, thou bearest thy father's face, frank nature, rather curious than in haste, hath well composed thee. Thy father's moral parts mayst thou inherit too. Welcome to Paris. And, you know, it's funny because it's also Shakespeare doing a pin in that where he's like, he hasn't inherited his father's moral parts, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, maybe his dad was an asshole. I guess we don't know. Um, but, yeah, it, there's something... Um, yeah, there is something interesting in the way the king has kind of, yeah, he's like called Bertram to court to, so like in, you know, at the beginning of Two Gentlemen of Verona, it's like mm. the whole thing is like, send your sons away to court. They need to either be like soldiers or scholars or courtiers and like that, those are kind of the paths for them. So pick one and like, then right. they'll be a good gentleman. But it's sort of like, Bertram's been made a courtier and then like stopped. Right. So, no, you can't, you can't go be a soldier. No, you right. can't be a husband in the way you wanted to be a husband. It's like, he kind of, the, the, he's being, Yeah. the king's just kind of like cupping him in his hands. Like I'm just going <laughs> to keep you here as a sort of, it's a really different like mm -hmm. roadblock to becoming a man than we've seen before. That's totally true. And it's like, what kind, yeah. I mean, I think this is the great question is like, what kind of man if all of the sort of traditional pathways are closed off to him, what kind of man is he supposed to be? And he gets cast not as a soldier, which is ostensibly what he wants to be, but as a husband and not by his own choice. So it's... Yeah, I mean, there's something... This is an early Jacobean play. Hmm. Um, but there's something that like feels really Elizabethan about that conflict to me and the hmm. sort of like tension that was really sort of circulating I don't know what is the verb what does tension do um <laughs> uh you know with the sort of the young men especially in the kind of latter parts of Elizabeth's reign and like there wasn't kind of a war to go to and there was this sort of desire to be like well we you're, you're kind of not giving us mm. any ways to prove ourselves and kind of be manly and you know right. she was obviously really famous for really tightly controlling the marriages of her favorites and like who was allowed to marry who and like, mm. um, you know, uh, lots of tales of unfortunate, unhappy marriages amongst her courtiers that she, right. kind of, you know, either didn't want to happen or like kind of forced to happen and stuff like that. So I don't know, like, I don't, mm. I'm, I don't really know what I'm trying to say, but that was just, it just kind, kind of, of makes you wonder if there's any like Elizabeth DNA in the King of France, which, you know, could be there because she was dead by now. I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, this, like, ill and dying yeah. king. Yeah. 
And he's a really interesting character. So, I mean, this moves us into Act 2, which is fine, because Act 1, that's what Act 1 is. Yeah. Um, Helena shows up pretty quickly. And this scene where she is introduced to the king, she sort of petitions, and his dude, LeFew, brings her in and is like, I met this extraordinary woman who has, like, some kind of mystical medicine. She wants to she wants to talk to you. And the king's like, okay. And then when she's kind of granted access, you know what it reminds me of a little bit is in the in the form of like petition access and then long intellectually evenly weighted like two scene. It reminds me a lot of that first um Angelo Isabella scene in Measure for Measure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean because the king's not falling in love with her in like an erotic way. But the way that the arguments are pitched and shared is really similar. Yeah, I mean, he has a sort of, you know, uh, duke in measure yeah. energy, too. Like, in the way that he puppet masters events, though in his case, not totally mm-hmm. intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's really, I feel like a lot of Act 2 is just, like, Helena repeatedly being asked to, like, prove herself. Mm-hmm. in different ways and she kind of rises to the challenge every time yes which is nice um good for yeah. her and this yeah. is one of the things where I'm like ah oh, this play is good like Helen is a great yeah. character she has these great she speeches is. she really is smart and funny <sighs> and I know. yet I know well yeah I mean this scene is really extraordinary it was one of the ones that like I didn't know that well and then when I was working on it suddenly I was like holy shit this really takes off it's a really like fascinating scene and the emotional kind of timbre of it is like because the king thinks that he's dying and the information that we were given in the very first scene of the play when the countess and Lefeu were talking about him is that everyone has given up like his you know Lefeu says something like he and his physicians are of one mind he that they cannot help and they that they and they that they cannot help or something like that you know it's basically just like it's all he's given up and um, in the scene where Bertram comes to court, too, actually, back in Act One, all of the dudes, he's kind of lamenting. He says something really striking about, like, uh, just waiting to die so that, you know, because he's like an aging queen in a hive of bees or something like that. And, like, he mm. has no, he has, he needs to leave the laborer's room or something like that. And then one of the young men says, but your majesty, you're loved. And he says, I fill a place. I know it. Yeah, and it's a he's just an incredibly emo and strange character. And so <laughs> Helena shows up and is like, you're you are not past saving. I can do it. And he just really doesn't want to believe it for a while. And so like the argument is like, no, you could live. And he's like, that's sweet of you, honey. But no, I can't. Everyone agrees. And yeah. it just like goes on forever. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the end, she does, you know, persuade him yeah. and cure him. And I just find it really fascinating just, like, how much work Shakespeare does. I just, I made that comment a second ago how it's like, oh, the whole act is about her proving herself. But it's like she's also proving herself to the audience. Yes. Like, Shakespeare spares no labor to Mm -hmm. make us see how great Helena is. And as if that is not enough, he also just really makes a point of making sure that every other character Mm -hmm. gets a chance to say it, too. Yes, we all talk about how great Helena is all the time. And she's not just like skillful or whatever, even though like the magic, the medicine that cures the king happens off stage. But one of the really striking elements about the kind of end game of that scene to me is um, she bets her own life. And that's not his idea, it's her idea. Like she, you know, she wagers. She's like, if I can't cure you, um, you know, you can kill me. 
Yeah. And he's yeah. like, holy shit, you must really be sure of yourself. I guess I'll, I'll go for it then. And then she presses the thing and is like, but if I, if I do it, what will you give me? And he's like, go for it. And then she get, you know, she says like, I want to pick my own husband from whoever, regardless of social status. And he's like, sure, let's go. Yeah. Though again, she is also like, but don't worry, I'm not going to pick like a prince or something. Yeah. She's sort of like, one of the things about Helena that's really interesting and, and in a way frustrating and sort of old fashioned feeling is this, her self-effacement yeah. as a character, which I think is something that like is seen as really sort of noble and um, attractive by everyone in the play. But I feel like for a modern audience, we find that we find that irritating in a woman because we don't want to be like, don't walk around all the time under pitching yourself it makes us insane you know what I mean like yeah well and it's the way that it jars with kind of the self-confidence of her expression like it makes you feel like oh this isn't just like a kind of timid person and this is just sort of how she is it's like no there's clearly Mm -hmm. a deep well of sort of intelligence and confidence and sort of almost Rosalind-esque kind of charm there that like we watch her suppress under this like self-effacement and that I think is the tension that is frustrating and like would be an interesting character arc if that was Mm -hmm. indeed the story of the character but unfortunately it's not there's something that feels weirdly like from the the energy of that of like it it all comes back to the hind that would be mated by the lion must die for love to me I feel Mm. like the like key to her character is so locked into that I feel like there's something about it that she likes I don't know. Yeah, I mean it's it's fascinating. It is. And it's and she and she kind of it's both it, it she performs it publicly too, which is part of what like this really interesting yeah. scene that follows where like he's like, "Okay, I've gathered every boy. Here's here's them all." Um and she kind of goes up to a couple of them and like makes this really odd show of like being mm-hmm. like considering them. What do you think and all of them again are like you seem great and she's like no I'm not good enough for you and they're like no you are it's it's cool and like so it's this yeah it's this really odd like but it doesn't come off manipulative it's it's really Mm. yeah it's really interesting the way that like it's like she does have this like self-effacing tendency Mm -hmm. um but she does then kind of put it on in front of everybody and sort of give performance and then finally you know last of all turns to Bertram and he's like uh no no thank you yeah and he's like shocked it's a really strange it's a strange strange moment and you're right the like Shakespeare takes pains to be like this is just a him thing it's not a her thing everyone else would be glad to marry her everyone else is about it and he does basically say, I don't have the line in front of me, but he, the first thing he says is basically like, Io, she's poor. And so the king has this whole speech where he's like, if that's all it is, don't worry about that. Like if you're, you know, he basically is like, if you're snobbish enough to care so much about her title, I'll give her a title. Like I'll raise her up if that's what'll do it for you. And then Bertram sort of ends with, I cannot love her, nor will strive to do it. Hi, <laughs> Betsy. Which is really like intense and unequivocal language. And I feel like, you know, theatrically, it's a really exciting moment because obviously it's this massive, um, it's this completely stern, unequivocal, unapologetic rejection. And it happens in this incredibly public arena. And is it gay? (laughs) Well, this is the question. We're uncorking it. I mean, 
he definitely does not want to have sex with this woman. And he says that, or he thinks he doesn't, or he says he doesn't. He says, what we know is he says he doesn't want to have sex with this woman. And he says it a bunch of times. He does. And it's like, it's a woman that has been set up as a woman that every other man can appreciate and find attractive. Right. Yeah, and the class thing feels too flimsy to be real. You know, I mean, it's like a conversation that we sometimes have, we've had in different parts of the podcast before where it's like, this feels like a cover for something. Like, what, yeah. whatever it is, I don't know. But it Well, feels especially like- in this play where we have not one but two separate scenes about, so we have the king basically saying, like, I will make her whatever title you need her to have and then there's also an earlier kind of funny scene with the countess where she's like you're basically like a daughter to me you're like my daughter and she's like um but then I'd be Bertram's sister so no thank you um which is sort of the joke of that scene and then it leads into her the countess being like by the way I know you love him um but is another example of the kind of flexibility of her class and like the countess's willingness to say like you're my son's equal like I don't see you as anything but as good as my own child. Yeah. And she's also just performed like essentially a miracle. Like there's, you know, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's a big deal. Her father also seemingly had, you know, like was this. Semi-miraculous. Was, yeah. A, semi-miraculous abilities was like a person. Gerard or, de Narbon. Speaking Gerard of weirdly Gerard. normal names. <laughs> yeah. Her dad, Gerard. Um, uh, yeah. But it's like, you know, when her and the king first enter into the scene where he presents all the men, they do like a dance together, which is textual, which is adorable. And there's all these comments from the court people where they're like, oh, my God, look at him. Like, he looks like 30 years younger. He's so wonderful. Like, oh, my God, she's amazing. They can dance together. And it's like this whole thing where she's she's literally brought like their sovereign back to life. Yeah. And he's like, I won't even try. Yeah. I cannot That's, love her, nor will strive to do it. It's just, I'm now I'm just immediately thinking of like, I'll look to like, if looking, liking move, like, yeah. you know, yeah. sure, I'll give it a go. But he's just like, no. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just so, it's like, uh, yeah, a rejection of a king's right. Yeah. To make you not use your virginity where you wish. Exactly. And then the king, who is now restored to health and also, you know, bad luck for Bertram to like full kingly power. It reminds me of that scene in Lord of the Rings where Theoden sort of comes out of the like <laughs> the whiskey. Yeah. You know, like it really is that. He suddenly is like an incredibly powerful middle-aged man and he's like, um no, you actually have to do what I say. I'm king. And in Helena's I mean, not defense really, but she, yeah. as soon as Bertram's like, no, she tries to walk it back and she's like, yeah. it's fine. It's fine. I don't, if you don't want this, I don't want it. Like, don't because worry about it's it. So profoundly mortifying. Yeah. And then the king is just like, this is his very Duke-like moment. Where he's like, no, shush. He has to. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh, he's God. like, no, you saved me and you're worthy of him. And he's being a, he's being a, a, like an asshole. And I decided it's the thing is he's like, I decided. So, and then they get like, sort of hand fasted they get like betrothed in front of all of these people after Bertram has said no I won't and after Helena has been like it's okay don't worry about it and then they just yeah and then they just get like ushered and clearly the king is like well this boy's a flight risk so they just get ushered off stage and get like immediately married they do um and it takes like it takes like four seconds yeah there's like a short little conversation in between and then it's interesting just in terms of these things about like the different pathways to masculinity and like yeah. 
where do you want to go to lose your virginity? Yeah. The place Bertram wants to go to lose his virginity is off to war with Parolis. Yes. With the lads. Yes. Yes. And so just to like lay a little space here. So the, the, the conversation, just because it is a little relevant, the conversation that happens while they're offstage getting married for two seconds is between Lefeu, who is kind of a queenie old man who works for the king, and Parolis, who's Parolis, who is, by the way, textually covered in scarves. People mention this many times, and I think it's incredibly funny. A man loves a scarf. He loves a scarf, but like not a scarf, like several scarves. It's many the plural scarves. across the whole play. But I'm not um, wondering if De Guiche and Cyrano de Bergerac is like a reference to that, but anyway. I wonder. Um, well, anyway, there's this little bit where, because uh, Bertram has like very, very unconvincingly been like, now that you say all that, I'm down with it to the king. And then that, then the king is like, get them married, get them married. So they go off stage and Lefeu says, your lord and master did well to make his recantation. And Perlis is like, recantation, my lord, my master. And Lefeu says, aye, is it not a language I speak? And Perlis says, a most harsh one and not to be understood without bloody succeeding, my master. And Lefeu says, are you companion to the Count Rousselian? And Perlis says, to any count, to all counts, to what is man? But he gets really <laughs> like, he gets really annoyed about the presumption that he's Bertram's servant, which is something that a lot of people make. Yeah, and like is interesting as well. So then it's like that's kind of the grounds on which they kind of join forces and are like, okay, we'll both go to war and both prove our masculinity. And a line that jumped out at me that I think is relevant to this as well is Perlis is like kind of trying to convince him, not that Bertram needs convincing. And Perlis says, he that wears his honor in a box unseen, that hugs his kicky-wicky here at home, spending <laughs> his manly marrow in her arms, which should sustain the bound and high curvet of Mars's fiery steed. Yeah. You know, that's it sucks to be that guy. Um, and there's just something about the, again, like we've heard this before, the direct contrast that gets yeah. um, uh, set up between like, if you're spending your manly marrow in your wife instead of in Mars, mm -hmm. um, then you're not yeah. a real man. Real yeah. men have sex with the god of war, not with women. It's a little bit, a little bit of our friend Hotsburg ghosting up here. The fire I made of smoky war. I mean, and also, um, so this tiny conversation, um, Bertram walks back on after being married and says yeah. to Parolis, undone and forfeited to cares forever. And Parolis says, What's the matter, sweetheart? Yeah. <laughs> Which also, wow. And then okay. Bertram says, Although before the solemn priest I've sworn, I will not bed her. And Parolis yeah. says, what, what, sweetheart? And he says, oh, my Parolis, they have married me. I'll to the Tuscan Wars and never bed her. And then Parolis is like, that sounds good to the wars. Yeah, and then that's yeah, where we get to think about, like, that's good because men who sleep with their wives are nothing, sleep with Mars instead. Sleep with Mars. Um, go, go with me and sleep with yeah. Mars. Yeah, so, the, you know, like, there is there is something here in, yeah, um, yeah where how, how would Bertram like to... Maybe like thinking of it even not in terms of like quite so literally like lose his virginity, but also, you know, hey, is like how, where and how do you want to undertake the thing that will make you a man? Like yeah. a, a girl becomes a woman because she has sex. Like where where does he want to go to do the thing that will mm -hmm. make him a man? Um, right. He wants to do it with other men at war. Spending his right. manly marrow. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just so gross. <laughs> I have to keep saying it. Ugh. Yeah, no, it's really, really interesting because it's like he is both not allowed to go to the war and forced to marry Helena. And so what he chooses to do is I'm going to not do I'm going to not have sex with Helena and I am going to go to the war. It's like there it's is two something at once. Yeah. And there is really something about like the first thing he's saying upon coming in is like it's about the sex. 
Yeah. You know, and I guess like in some ways it's because that's all that's left to him to refuse mm-hmm. because they're married. But it yeah. is just like really pointedly like, mm-hmm. well, the one thing they can't force me to do is have sex with her. Yeah. And also I think like, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of thoughts in my head about this. I'm going to also quote the lost to the ether conversation that we had the other day about this. Yeah, well. um, something, <laughs> that, something that you said then, which I found really interesting, was that the the idea of the different ideas that about consent and about marriage that they would have had in the period, like the idea that once you are married, like you, you owe this person, like this person has a right to have sex with you. And yeah. the, whole re- the whole rest of the play is predicated on that. The fact that like the die is cast, you married her, which means that you have to have sex with her, which means that in the eyes of justice, anything that she could now do to get you to do that is just a restoration of what she is owed. Like that refusal yeah. makes no sense. Yeah. And I think that this is something I, you know, I think I said, we said this in measure for measure as well, but like, it's something mm-hmm. it's so striking to me how aware Shakespeare is in both these plays that like the women are so radically disempowered by society yeah. as you know, wives who have been, or like betrothed, whatever, Mariana, fiancés who have been kind of discarded and ignored by their husband. Like Shakespeare recognizes socially, they have absolutely no redress. They have no rights. They, you know, will struggle to survive. Mm -hmm. That he, any kind of notion of bodily autonomy that Mm -hmm. Shakespeare may feel men have is less important than the complete lack of power and autonomy that these women have if their husbands won't acknowledge them. Yeah, which is actually really interesting. Yeah. This thing of, like, who has the right to refuse? Not a married man, apparently. No. Yeah, and And I don't think Shakespeare, at least as far as Bertram is concerned, has any empathy for that idea. Like, he's just like, no, fuck you, Bertram. Just do your goddamn job. Yeah, yeah, and, like, yeah, it's it's too it's too late. This is and com it's complicated because when that's sat next to the total worthiness of Helena in sort of Shakespeare's eyes and and he he hopes I think the audience and as reinforced by every other character in the play like it really is framed as this is a Bertram problem and this is a Bertram um, mistake. Yeah, that needs to be overcome in order for us to arrive where we are meant to arrive. Yeah. And maybe the nature of that mistake is partly a little gay. And maybe it is. Maybe or it is maybe a little gay. the mistake is in him thinking it is. Yeah, it's a really, it's a complicated layer cake, but it is a man running to another country because he doesn't want to have sex with a yes. woman. So do with that what you will. Yeah, and so... Moving into act three, I think something that's interesting that happens once he gets to other country and mm-hmm. we spend so much time in this war that doesn't matter mm-hmm. um, is like, this is for me is where the comparison to Falstaff that you made for Parolis becomes really interesting. Yeah. Um, because in some ways I feel like what happens in this act is something that you could imagine existing in like one of the Henry Four plays where like Parolis getting exposed as a coward is kind of framed as this like awakening for Bertram. And there's like all these kind of interesting moments where people sort of try to blame Bertram's behavior on Parolis and be like, oh, well, you know, it's too bad they're friends. And like, oh my gosh, it's awful how he's acting this way because of Parolis, which Mm. A, is weird because it's not really true. Bertram was 
being a dick of his own volition without totally. Perlis's input at all. Yeah. Um, and is B, weird because I can't remember if I was using letters or numbers in this list, but it's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, is weird because Bertram has seemed perfectly aware of the fact that Perlis kind of sucks from the beginning. So it's kind of framed as a revelation, but like it isn't. And it's it's really odd dynamic and like it's almost mm-hmm. almost a version of the kind of Hal and Falstaff yeah. story, which like is interesting to think about in light of what we've just said. It's like, is it that Bertram is mistaken in thinking that he would prefer to be with men than with women? Um, but right. it's like not. It doesn't quite slot into place. No, it's not quite the Falstaff story, but he has so many, I mean, he's framed, he's, he's described as a corrupting influence by so many people. And that, whenever we see that, I feel like that has to sort of be germane to the conversation. The Countess says to one of the gentlemen, she says about Parolis, she says, a very tainted fellow and full of wickedness. My son corrupts a well-derived nature with his inducement. You know, he's really like, that's what people put their finger on is like, ah, he's a bad influence. He's not, you know. And of course, one of the things he ultimately does is influence Bertram to actually run away to the war. Yeah. Which again, yeah. Bertram wanted to do any, it's like hard because like Bertram wanted to do anyway. And he said he yeah. was going to do it anyway. And like, sure, Perlis didn't stop him, but he also yeah. didn't originate the idea. He doesn't, he never sort of originates the idea. He just eggs on his bad behavior, I feel yeah. like. Which is like but it is yeah. like interesting how like the play kind of tries to encourage us maybe to see him as the problem. And you're a little yeah. bit like, is he? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know what his, I, I don't know what the counterpoint sort of of Parolis is uh, unmasking. And I mean, basically it's the comic subplot, but I don't know what the the extra comic subplot of already a comedy, but I don't know what it's supposed to thematically say, but I do know that in performance, it's weirdly funny. <laughs> That's sort of all I know. I mean, you know, people pretending to speak different languages is often very funny. Yeah. It's, um, really, it's really broad. It's really broad comedy. Mostly. Yeah, they basically... It's it's almost like Malvolio-esque in that he's blindfolded and kind of made to believe he's in this, like he's been captured and there's like all these people pretending to be interpreters and speak different languages and they basically just like watch him piss himself with fear. Yeah, um, and it's hilarious. I wonder, something that really, really jumped out at me reading it this time, and I wonder if maybe this is the thematic counterpoint you're looking for, is mm. that's what the men are doing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, we actually have like a really powerful sense of like friendship yeah. and solidarity between the women. Yeah. Um, and that is like, especially kind of through act three and act four is like a contrast that felt really striking to me is that like mm-hmm. Bertram finds amongst someone he's known forever, a person he ultimately can't trust. And Helena meets a woman mm really nice yeah who like and within 30 seconds learns this woman could betray her mm-hmm. by sleeping with Bertram this is Diana um and instead they immediately form like a bond of sisterhood and like a pact to help protect and fight for each other you know what you just made me think of that I hadn't thought of before is the scene when Julia and Sylvia meet in Two Gentlemen of Verona yeah. When when Julia is in disguise for a second at the beginning of that conversation and learns that her boyfriend Proteus um, has met Sylvia, fallen in love with her and is going to betray her and try to go for Sylvia, all of that. When the women end up in the same place and have a conversation about it, immediately Sylvia is like, I would never do that to another woman. I would never do that to you. And yeah. like and like the sisterhood is formed and stuff. And I hadn't really made that leap until now. But yeah, it's. Um, so what happens is Helena rocks up in Italy 
on a pilgrimage and ends up meeting um, uh, Diana and her mother, who's a widow. And her then the widow's friend, also named Mariana, which is interesting. And they're this kind of like enclave of women who just sort of, because notably a widow, there's no man in the picture. They live their own little life. Diana's name is Diana. There's a lot of like female solidarity <laughs> and chastity going around, you know? Yes. And Bertram is apparently, we are told, hanging out outside Diana's window, like serenading her and trying to get her to like talk to him every day. And she's just like, no, no, thank you. This is like, you imagine this is maybe how Rosaline would act in Romeo and Juliet if we got to meet her. Just like, yes. no. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, just like, no, thanks. Bye-bye. You know. Um, but... And she's like immediately so angry and indignant on Helena's behalf once she Helena is. kind of explains what's yes. going on. Um, and, yeah. you know, has like these really interesting lines when she's kind of like laying out to Bertram, like, okay, I'll sleep with you. Here are my conditions, which are very mm -hmm. funny. Um, and then, you know, kind of gets a moment to be like, literally anything we do to him is justified. Like I have no guilt about this entire situation yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's talk about the bed trick because um, it is proposed by Helena. Yes. And which is a very different for measure for measure. Yes. So so um, this is something that's really of interest to me. When I was briefly working on it in July, one of the actors was like, when like in the career did, you know, like where is Oswell in the canon in relationship to Measure for Measure. And we looked it up and I think that it's, I think it's the same year. They were like sequentially written. Yeah, I, I mean. I don't remember which is first. I think Measure's first, think measure's but I'm not first. sure. Um, yeah, it's, there was like a trend. There was a bed play, trick play trend a little bit. They kind of don't show up much before this. And then there was like a bunch for a couple of years and then they kind of peter out. Like people were just like really into bed tricks for a hot minute for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's so interesting. Cause the only other one that I can think of just like from the bag of things that I've worked on is the changeling, which is also a Jacobean play. Yeah. There's a bunch yeah. all in that. I like can't think of other names yeah. right now, but there's a ton all from that area. It's actually much, much, much more unusual to do what Shakespeare does, which is have it be the woman who's tricking the man. Most of them are mm -hmm. men tricking women or appearing to trick women and then it not actually happening and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, so Shakespeare mm -hmm. sort of has this little trend, but also he is sort of a mini trend in himself and that he right. uses it actually fairly differently from other writers. Which is fascinating because it's this thing that we were talking about of like the justice of it, of like once you've been, because yes. it's the same thing in Measure for Measure, it's the restoration of someone who reneged on a promise to a woman who is deserving of him. Yeah. But like, I think it's, I mean, since we've made this comparison, like, yeah, I really, this is my like kind of hot take. <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I, I do feel a bit bad for Angelo in the end. I, I do too. Partly because, you know, he then gets threatened with death, which we have spent the entire play agreeing is a completely extreme and insane sentence for, you know, like sexual, sexual misdeeds. misdeeds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the death penalty. Um, but, uh, <laughs> And and just in general, there's just a kind of like darkness and discomfort and seeminess and like his own weird reluctance to be giving into this at all just like makes you feel really weird about the whole situation. It's a deeply ambivalent play. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whereas Shakespeare has hammered home so aggressively up to this point and after this, yeah. what a dick Bertram is. 
how like Diana's invitation to him is like fine you can have 10 minutes it's in the dark you can't talk to me and you have to leave immediately and he's still like sounds great um (laughs) and like I wonder now that we've like I mean this like feels a little bit I don't know but I'm gonna say it anyway yeah is this one more morally clear because it wasn't arranged by a man Mm. because it's the women finding a route to justice for themselves I think that it's such a complicated sort of maze. The, like I said, this is, uh, I can only speak from my kind of like 3D from the inside experience having worked on it because I've never seen it. So I've never had an experience with this play as an audience member. But I think the solidarity between the women does something to you that does make you feel um that does make you feel like you want to be on their side and you understand the perspective and their sense of powerlessness is really clear. And the way that Bertram is like pressing his advantage in a really sleazy way is really clear. And then I think some things that Helena says after the sex happens about how it went also really complicate the picture in a way for me. But I definitely know people who, you know, like in a contemporary theater landscape who have engaged with this play who are like, no, it's rape. What happens to Bertram is rape. And it's just the same, like, you know, lack of consent with a man as it would be with a woman and and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, so just to jump ahead a little bit, I guess, the thing that Helena says about the sex after it's happened is, um, let me find it, let me find it. After the 10 minute, the silent 10 minutes in the dark has happened, um, Helena uh, talking to Diana and the widow, like back with the women after, talks a bunch of logistics and then kind of as a throwaway in the middle of a speech says, but oh, strange men that can such sweet use make of what they hate. And I think that is such an interesting line because it's also Shakespeare telling us even in like a drive-by way that like, not only did the sex happen, everybody had a good time. Like it was good. It like when he didn't know, whatever he didn't know, like the thing itself, like the animal experience of it was like, good for everyone yeah which is like obviously like the weird like tension at the heart of the bed trick yeah in the sense that like you know the presumably early modern belief and like for some people still contemporary belief like well a man can't be raped because if he's not having a good time how would he get it up and blah 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 blah, which is like obviously not true um but I think is also yeah, at the heart of the sense of justice that Shakespeare is kind of endowing these mm-hmm. drinks with, which is like, this is the route back to the thing. Like, it's almost like, well, you should have just given it a try, Bertram. It turns out you would have liked it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well, I think, yeah, this sort of deeper, like, sense of you ran away from what was ultimately right for you. And, yeah. She, yeah. Was, and she was right about it. I. This is this is one of my kind of hypotheses about this play as a director, which might be in tension with the idea of Bertram being a little bit queer, or or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe he's a confused bisexual. But um, I've always felt like one of the only ways to do this play, I feel really similarly about the other Helena and Demetrius in Midsummer Night's Dream, is that if you find a way to show to the audience in the first half of the play that some kind of chemistry and sexual attraction and 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 some kind of rightness between them is so undeniable and so chemical and kind of physical that you can see what she feels and you can know that she's right about it 
And then you get to sort of write into the gaps what the boy is afraid of, um, running away from, resistant to, et cetera, whether it's just the lack of agency, like he wanted to do the picking himself, or whether it's just like the nature of the sexual kind of attraction that he, that, you know, or whatever it is. It's interesting to think of like this Helena as a sort of rewrite of that Helena, because I think that in some ways, while we as contemporary viewers need that extra layer of something in some way like have you having put it like that I'm like well the two Helenas have the exact same problem they were promised something and Mm -hmm. are helpless unless they can get it yep because obviously Helen is like strongly implied to have already had sex with Demetrius yeah and you know Helena this Helena's married and abandoned and can't go anywhere or do anything or live her life unless her husband acknowledges her right um and I think it's, you know, funny to think of that being in tension with the queerness as well, because as we talked about so often in, not so often, but more often than you'd think in a random mm. sampling, um, uh, directors now like to make the thing that Demetrius yeah. is wrong about be that they are both men and like it's a queer relationship. And so we're like, oh, well, he's in the closet or he's just scared of his sexuality. And like, yeah, that's become in somewhat problematic ways, I think this really legible, like, oh, well, of course he doesn't know what's best for himself. You know, he's, he's too afraid. Yeah. Um, Yes. That is problematic, but it's interesting because that's such a, that's such a, an E that's, that's such a making it easy, making it, making it as visible as possible for the audience. And it's, yeah. Yeah. But it's like, it's still that even if it, even if you don't re-gender the character, like somehow, you know, I don't know. It's still, it's messy in the same way. Yeah, well, there's, again, it's, like, this idea that, like, and again, I mean, it's sort of too, uh, it's too easy, I say, doing an entire project about this, so it better not be this easy to say, (laughs) like, well, from a modern point of view, it's rape is rape, and it's wrong and bad, and, like, that's all there is to it, which is, like, sure, fine, and, like, if you don't want to engage with this play because of that, like, I, (laughs) that's fine. Sure. Um, But to try and think about what Shakespeare thought it was. Yeah. And I do think this idea that, like, by having married her, you have already consented. Yes is um you know key and even like yeah totally because if if that's the social understand if that's the social contract even on top of that is the narrative project of Helena as a character and what she wants and deserves and knows to be true and what the play wants for her and takes to be true it's like this whole other layer of like not only do you owe her because of this social fabric that we all like believe in and buy into but also you belong with her which is something that she is right about yeah I mean that's what I think is I think that's what Shakespeare's I think that's what Helena's project is the tension for for a modern audience is whether or not we can I mean the whole tension of Helena which you basically said earlier is I do think she's like maybe the most Rosalindy heroine of the comedies who isn't Rosalind like I think she's so smart and and um playwrighty and you know like interesting and yet the thing the end to which she is architecting her story is not what we maybe want for her or we don't understand it in some way yeah because Bertram is horrible and Shakespeare maybe this can move us into act five does not let us forget it for one single solitary second. This is just what I cannot like deal with, with this play. And this is what I'm talking about when I say that, like, I just get to the last when at the Mm. time that I saw it. And when I read it, I just get to the ending and I'm just like, Oh, why are we expending all this energy for this outcome that nobody wants? 
Um, except like, Helena, you know, for Helena. And it's just like so wild. And like, you know, I think about a play like much ado about nothing, which like, you yeah. know, everybody hates Claudio. Everybody thinks he sucks now, but like, yeah. because he's sort of such a loosely drawn character, you know, we get to see him palling around with the guys. He gets to be in some of the funny scenes. Like he gets kind of associated with fun stuff. Mm -hmm. And even <laughs> when people are critical of him, like, I think that the really crucial kind of dramaturgical choice that Shakespeare makes in that play is we don't see mm -hmm. whatever he saw at the window when he thinks it's hero. So we yeah. can imagine that it was this incredibly convincing display. Yes. And like, that doesn't excuse how he behaves about it. But it's like, there's this kind of gap that's left for us to kind of come up with a way to explain why he did this. We also see him wholeheartedly apologize to the point where he's willing to die if that's what people think justice would be. Yeah, and also then to marry whoever they tell him to marry. He ends, kind of he ends in the place Bertram begins, which yeah. is he, he voluntarily gives up the agency over his own marriage. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it doesn't, you know, matter to me. I understand now. Um, and so it's like Shakespeare gives us something. Yeah. In Bertram, it's like, go on, give us nothing, King. Like, yeah. he gives us nothing. Yeah. No, I know. Bertram is, but that's the thing is it's like, you're left to sort of try to figure out the puzzle of like, because again, speaking as a director, since that is my curse, um, the question really is like, if you were to build a project, like if you were to build a production of All's Well, It Ends Well, I think to me the most the the defining question would be are you building a play where you ask the audience to believe in what Helena wants and to and you spend all of your time building a universe where what Helena wants makes sense and she gets it in the end and we are allowed to feel perhaps bittersweet about it but but sort of with her and proud of her and like we're supposed to arrive with her or do you build a production where you love everything about Helena except what she wants and you have to watch her like is is the is the tension the point or do you have to i don't know like where are you meant to arrive and i think you could do a bunch of different a, a bunch of different you know journeys towards the ending but I feel like that would have to be the question you would have to answer first I know and then it's so hard because it's like we're sort of back in this thing that we've come back to you know so many times where it's like well if you don't believe that Romeo and Julia are in love then like just don't do the play and on some Correct. level it's like mm -hmm. well if you don't think mm -hmm. the play ends in a in the way, way it's supposed to satisfying <laughs> yeah. it has yeah. meaning and like you know yeah. we're like everything's great now says the king like then don't then maybe just don't if you don't believe in what the play wants you to believe in and I do think I mean it's but then it's like what does I know I, I mean it's I genuinely I come down on the side of Shakespeare has not created a deliberately ambiguous play he's kind of fucked up and he's weighted the scales too hard against Bertram and made it too hard to rescue any sense of a satisfying or happy ending and I don't I don't think it's on purpose I think it's sloppily written mm. that may be true I I think I'm not sure what I think but I am really compelled by I think that there is a notable amount of language in the play about the both andness and about bittersweetness and about like um about the tension between things being as they should be but not quite 
and I'm interested in it. I don't know if it if it points to like a kind of grand architectural intention about how it's supposed to end, but there's enough of it that I think you could go in looking for that. Yeah, no, I guess I should be clear. I totally agree, but I just think that he, he the, the bitter to sweet balance is off. It's too yeah. bitter and not enough sweet. And it doesn't for me, yep. I just don't think it successfully comes out yeah. with the blend that I feel like mm. he's aiming for. The bitter to sweet balance. It's like, also that ends well is like a really, it's like a really tart Negroni. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, like so when you put in a tablespoon of salt yeah. instead of a teaspoon, and then you're like, yeah. oh shit. Um, but, but, and I think. Oh no, you go ahead. Well, so I mean, just to kind of lead us into the text of Act Five, part of what contributes to that impression for me is that mm-hmm. when we get to the scene where everything kind of comes together, um, every single man acts like such a raging dickhead mm. to Diana when she comes in to kind of try and explain what has happened, beginning with Bertram, who shows himself at his absolute worst, a man who has learned nothing. Mm. The king, like, jumps on board, and, like, when she kind of keeps pushing her case, kind of gets, like, as she gets more aggressive, he gets very impatient with her and finally is like, I am sick of this lady. Take her to jail and make her shut up. And even, like, LeFew is off to the side, like, making comments about how she's just this crazy slut. And you're just like, Shakespeare, yeah. Why have you set up this situation to make me hate everyone so much? I know. I mean, it is, it it does structurally remind me of Measure for Measure so much in the way that the yeah. final acts kind of drain into this, like, basically judicial proceeding, kind of ad hoc judicial proceeding, where the yeah. women have to sort of be their own lawyers. And mm-hmm. in Measure for Measure, it's frustrating because the Duke, who could take off his, like, cloak and explain everything, is on stage the whole time. Like, the person who has the power to keep the women from is being mistreated... Not- is on stage and not doing it, which is why I think we feel weirder, even weirder in a way at the end of Measure for Measure, because the thing that's happening in All's Well is that they, because it's a group of women, there is no Duke in the center of their conspiracy. Yeah. There is no one with the social power to protect them. The only thing that has the social power to protect them is Helena's pregnancy. And yeah. as soon as it walks on stage, they've won. But then what's sort of conversely really frustrating about that for the characters is like, oh, you can kind of tell yourself the Duke is like putting on an act and how you feel about that is- uh, Your your own business. <laughs> yes. But the King is just expressing his beliefs. Like when he begins to lose patience with how talkative Diana is and the fact that she's not giving in, that's just him being himself and yeah, revealing his like latent sexism. So you're like, totally. great, thanks. Totally. No, it's a lot. It's, um, yeah, it's, I mean, so maybe we should slow down a little bit and kind of like look at the beats of act five because there's a lot yeah. of lying and a lot of yelling and it's basically just sort of um it's like one of those it's like a Jerry Springer episode in a sense I mean in a way what's interesting is that in some ways I mean much like measure for measure it's kind of both unlike measure for measure where it's really Isabella who takes the lead and then Mariana gets brought in at the end as proof in this it's Diana who really takes the lead and therefore it's sort of simultaneously her and Bertram who are kind of both on trial yeah and for, for, you know, because if the the opening gambits are basically that if Diana is telling the truth, Bertram seduced her while he was abroad and then ran away, which is what he thinks happened. Yep. And then if Bertram is telling the truth, which obviously he isn't, she's just like some random hoe who like threw a handkerchief out a window at him or something. And then they slept together and, you know, like, yeah. 
well, he can't quite keep his story straight, can he? There's like eight different versions of what he says happened. And it all gets bound together in a very um, annoyingly Merchant of Venice-like way with the ring of like, who gave who the ring? Whose ring is this? I saw you wearing that ring. That ring was Helena's ring, which used to be the king's ring. It's so many rings. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really... I mean, it's just, unlike Angelo, who just kind of cops to everything as soon as it comes up. As soon as it comes out, Angelo's like, I did that. Yeah. I did do that. Bertram <laughs> lies and yeah. lies and lies. He opens the scene lying about how he's like, now that Helen is dead, I love her yeah. so much. And I feel so sad. Because that's, I think, I said this in the plot summary, but the reason he goes back to France is that as the kind of cap of this bed trick, Helena puts out a rumor that she has died. <laughs> which we learn Bertram learns before the bed trick. So he... Yes, you're right. Um, Because there's this really sort of fascinating and horrible exchange between two random soldiers, where one of them... Could you, I think, could you main? I love them. They haven't... In my edition, they don't have names. Um, uh, one of them is like... Says something along the lines of like, I'm sorry that he will be so glad of this news. Yeah, he said... One of them says like, oh, did you hear Bertram's wife died? And the other says, I'm heartily sorry that he'll be glad of this. Yeah. And and then there's another bit later in the scene where, like, one of them is like, do you have any idea what he's going to do next? And the other one's like, oh, if you're asking me that question, you must not know him very well. And the first one's like, yeah, and thank God for it. Like, I would never be friends with somebody like him. Like, mm. just in terms of Shakespeare not letting up on how everyone thinks Bertram sucks and the audience yeah. should, too. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So he comes into this scene, and this is an interesting question because I'm not, depending on what kind of ending you're driving for, I think you could use it in a number of ways. The text Bertram has um, about Helena's death when he comes in, some of it, which I really like, is, um, thence it came that she whom all men praised and whom myself, since I have lost, have loved, was in mine eye the dust that did offend it. And then the king kind of moves on with his orders of business really quickly, but once Bertram has said that, he's like, you know, be this something, something, dear Helen's Nell, and now forget her. And he proceeds to try to marry Bertram kind of politically to Lefeu's daughter, who we never see. Um, and then the girls walk in. And who, I just have to note, like Bertram, for her, performs mm-hmm. all the appropriate, like, oh, I always really liked her, actually. No, 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 I'm really excited. You know, it's just like all mm-hmm. the really conventional. Yeah courtship for the unseen Lafue daughter yeah 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 like is it true doesn't matter he's saying all the right things now um right which yeah like I think that you could make more hash of if he then did not go on to <laughs> gaslight the shit out of Diana and everyone like, <laughs> and everyone else call her a whore call her insane like just mm-hmm. pull out every single trick in the book to try and discredit her and yeah, like distance himself from the situation. His mother is also present by the by the bay by the by by the by the way by the by um who by is bay. just like by the bay um who is just like horrified by his behavior obviously and all it's like yeah. all the old people like the few the few who was gonna have him as a son-in-law if he had married his daughter whose name is Maudlin I just remembered yes. um ridiculous Shakespeare that's not a thing it's Lefeu, a version of Magdalene. Ill. Maudlin. Um, Lafew is like, fuck this guy. I won't like I'll he says like I'll I'll buy a son-in-law and leave him alone or something like that. Something really like get this guy out of here. Like all the old people are like, what a piece of shit the whole yeah. time. But yeah. yeah, I mean he says something like, because Diana again is doesn't isn't from this country, is a random young woman with no social standing who's claiming that he had sex with her and ran away. And 
you know, she, she, all she has, she has the ring. I won't even try to track the ring dramaturgy, but at some point, like, <laughs> impossible. One of the things that, um, that he says is like, she was a common gamester to the camp or something like this. And like, just really vile stuff. And just like, oh, she was fucking all the soldiers and like all of yeah. this. All- and her mother is also right there. Yeah. And like, he, you know, yeah, he lies. He's like, no, she just threw this ring out the window at me. Um, and I'm trying to find, yeah, your reputation comes too short for my daughter. You're no husband for her. Yeah. My Lord, this is a fond and desperate creature whom sometime I have laughed with. Mm-hmm. Let your highness lay a more noble thought upon mine honor than for to think I would sink it here. And again, he yeah. thinks he slept with her. Yes. Like, yeah, that's the thing is important to remember. He thinks they did have sex and he's comfortable saying all of this stuff. Yeah. It's really wild. Yeah. And sort of much like how the only thing that can kind of clarify matters in Measure for Measure is like the Duke accidentally being unmasked. Yes. The only thing that can kind of get things on the right track is Helena physically coming in. Lots Mm -hmm. of productions make her visibly pregnant, which makes absolutely no sense with the timeline. But, you know... And it, yet all the characters recognize that she's pregnant, which is yeah, well, you like know. complicated. I mean, well, it, it's, ma- <laughs> it's, it's magic. It is as I, as I turn, as I named act five in my Google doc, a deus ex pregnancy. It is though in some ways, can they see it? Because Bertram's last line, Bertram's very last line is very beautiful. Yeah. We'll get to Bertram's that. Bertram's penultimate line, a little more skeptical of this whole situation. Well, really, and, oh no, you got it. Oh, no, 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 go for it. Well, I was going to say, really, I guess what happens is Diana tells everybody she's pregnant because Diana does a sort of, yeah. like, magician's reveal of Helena, who has been, like, waiting to enter after she sort of sees how Bertram conducts himself, I suppose. And this is where really, like, spooky, witchy sisterhood, slightly into the woods-like fairy tale language comes back <laughs> because cow is white as milk. Um, uh, Diana says... In front of everybody, referencing Bertram, she says, But for this lord, who hath abused me as he knows himself, though yet he never harmed me, here I quit him. He knows himself my bed he hath defiled, and at that time he got his wife with child. Dead though she be, she feels her young one kick. So here's my riddle, one that's dead is quick. And then and then Helena walks in, and everybody's that's like, oh, She's not dead! Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's... I have like 10 billion thoughts off the back yeah. of that. But I think what I'll just say is that like what it's a very kind of hero like reveal. Yes. Um, the King says it's real. I see. And Helen says, no, my good Lord, tis mm-hmm. but the shadow of a wife. You see the name and not the thing. And Bertram says both, both. Oh, pardon. Yes. Um, oh, my good Lord. Helen says, when I was like this maid, I found you wondrous kind. There is yeah. your ring. And look, you, here's your letter. Letter. Here's what it says. This is done. Will you be mine now that you are doubly one? And Bertram says, if she, my liege, can make me know this clearly, I'll love her dearly, ever, ever dearly. Yeah. Um, and then Helen says, if it appear not plain and prove untrue, deadly divorce step between me and you. Oh, my dear mother, do I see you living? And that's the end of the two of them. Um, sorry, I just figured I'd just keep going with yeah. that. Yeah, no, I mean, there's like 8,000 things that are of interest in there. So we can do like a kind of, like, I have to sort of comb back through them because there's so many interesting things about that. I mean, both, both, oh, pardon, is also a, a gnarly moment, you know? And, and she doesn't answer. 
she doesn't she doesn't and oh gosh and the the a shadow the shadow thing um but yeah a shadow, the shadow of the white the name not the thing reminded me of like 10 different things we had a whole conversation about like the shadow versus the substance thing and also yeah. to gentlemen of verona of like what it means to just be the yeah also i don't know it also somehow reminded me of love's labors of the following the signs wooed but the sign of she the idea of mm. like being being the title of a thing but not endowed with the meaning unless you're treated the way that you should be you know like yeah and i think what is so the problem that Shakespeare has set up here, <laughs> among many other things, is that, you know, again, yeah, both, both, oh, pardon, like, what mm -hmm. a line, you know, it's just so short, and again, like, I'll love her dearly, ever, ever dearly, I feel like, you know, so often in Shakespeare, the simpler something is, the truer it feels. That's a great but, end, yes. <laughs> Bertram has lied and lied and lied like at every turn mm -hmm. in the very first scene he's like not the very first scene but like when they get engaged he you know he lies and is like and he lies in a way that's really unusual in Shakespeare where usually characters kind of telegraph that they're lying by telling the audience kind of right before or right after yeah. but Bertram lies and then we don't find out often until the next scene when he contradicts himself that he was lying um, yeah, or until someone comes on and is like, no, I have incontrovertible evidence that the thing you just said is yeah. not true. But so like, for example, in that first scene when he, you know, the king is like, you have to marry her. And then Bertram has these lines where he's like, mm, you know what, actually, since she's the beloved of a king, she must be good enough for me. I'll do it. And then you mm -hmm. even have Lefeu being like, oh, it's so great that he changed his mind. Mm. And we don't know that he is lying until he comes back in and has that scene with Parolas mm -hmm. a little bit later where he's like, oh, I'm so mad. And similarly, like at the in this scene, he has lied and lied and lied and lied. And it's just mm. like, what are I know. you giving us, Shakespeare, to help us think that this is real and not just Bertram being absolutely backed into a corner and, you know, unable to come up with any more lies? This is the thing that, so you know what you're describing really that I just, that really just hit me is like, for a couple in a love story, ostensibly in a Shakespeare comedy, we are given a baffling lack of access to Bertram's interiority. Like Claudio mm -hmm. gets Claudio gets speeches to the audience. He says, like he we get to we understand his psychology. Mm -hmm. He's incredibly transparent about it. Almost all of the boys we get we get way more access to Demetrius than we do to Bertram. You know, I mean like the boys who fuck up, we get to know a lot better. And one of the things that I think makes the um the couple so unconvincing feeling to us or or um confusing to us is that we don't know him yeah you know which is funny because it's not we do spend a lot of time with him like much more than with Demetrius but it's mm -hmm. all in the context of like fucking about with parolis other people. it's all in the context yeah. of these relationships that in the end don't matter and that he kind of learns don't matter mm -hmm. but it's hard to feel like he has actually genuinely learned that this relationship does mm -hmm. matter. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to, if you are trying to arrive at Helena's ending, the you know, the like pay it off, buy in ending, you have to do a hell of a lot of heavy lifting. And I guess I just wonder like, thinking purely from the point of view of like an artistic experience or like, you know, an mm -hmm. entertainment experience really yeah. in a theater, it's like, what is the point of a sto the story that is this girl really wanted this guy. She went to the ends of the to the ends of the earth to get him. And at the end of the day, 
she backed him into a corner and he said yes because he had to and she sort of sadly yeah. and reluctantly was like mm, well we got here, here. We are yeah yeah <laughs> like what is what is the point of that story is like is yeah. is then the title just pure irony well I mean it's so it's interesting that you said that because one of my favorite moments so like she, Helena has also said the title a couple times by this point in act four when she's like doing her most Rosalindy things I think and like sort of shepherding the you know moving Diana and the widow around with her like pieces on a chessboard where she's like we have to go here we have to do this she says uh all all all's well that ends well a couple of different times where she's like it's going to be okay. This is what we're going to do. And then the final lines of the play are when the king kind of brings them back together. And it's a sort of like little echo of the, of the first sort of betrothal in a way, the king kind of solemnizes it. And his last lines, which are the last lines of the play are all yet seems well. And if it ends so neat, the bitter past more welcome is the sweet, which of course is interesting considering the like bitter to sweet ratios thing <laughs> we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, bitter and sweeter in the last line anyway. And that little moment that she has of like, and if you fuck it up now, I'll divorce you. Well, I mean, really what she's saying is like, if you try to, like, I've, I've did the thing. Yeah. Like, I yeah. have the evidence. Right. So if you don't, I mean, again, it's, it's really the equivalent of her being like, if I can't cure you, I'll die. She's like, if yeah. I'm lying, you can divorce me. Helena is really just like it's an entire play of a girl of that girl who is like I can fix him, you know, yeah. like that girl you know who's like I can fix him, and then you're like, all right, but why? And, then, and that's I mean, it's a really really complicated. And I mean, and I guess before we totally tie it up, we should do a, a little Parola swatch, I suppose, since he has a couple of tiny little interesting moments at the end here. There was uh, him and well, Le well no, you go ahead. Well, no, I was gonna say I was gonna save this, but we could do it now. Is that oh, we sure. actually do get a gay moment? It does. It is gay in the end. I realized because uh, yeah, at the end, the few and Perlis go home together. Uh, he's <laughs> like they're watching this, and the few's like, "My eyes smell onions. I shall weep anon." Good Tom Drum, which is Perlis, lend me a handkerchief. So I thank thee. Wait on me at home. I'll make sport with thee. Let yeah. thy courtesies alone. They are scurvy ones. And then we go into the king's final speech. So, you know, we do pair off two of the men to like go have a nice time together. The old gays do end up together. There is a funny, there's a funny moment too where um, oh my gosh, where is it? Where when when Parolis first comes back, he says something to Lefew, like he's like, You were the first that found me out or something. He says, Oh my good lord, you were the first that found me. And Lefew says, Was I, Susan? I was then the first that lost thee. And Parola says, It lies in you, my lord, to bring me some grace, for you did bring me out which is very funny language, but, you know, uh, actually textually about the fact that Lefew was the first person to be like, I think that guy's like a coward and a buffoon, but yeah, they go home together. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. It's just, yeah. yeah. So it is gay. We've solved, we've solved that. We've solved um, that. <laughs> I mean, and in a way, like it is the, uh, whether or not we think it's intentional. Yeah the lack of closure and resolution that heterosexuality is ultimately able to provide any of the characters, both of whom have perhaps found stronger bonds within same-sex mm -hmm. communities, yeah. is a little gay. It's, a li it's many, many things, but it might also be a little gay. There we go. There we go. Thank you so much for listening. Now, here at the end, 
of all things, is <laughs> when we choose um, what play we're going to talk about next time live mm. on the air. Um, do you have any thoughts? Well, it's funny because, like, the play we ended up talking about the most was Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is a play we've already done. We already did that one. Um, well, I mean, on the grounds of plays that maybe don't work structurally, uh, we could do King John like we hinted that we might. <laughs> that's right. Um, well, on the grounds of plays that don't work structurally, of which we have a few left, um, <laughs> I think the one that I like the best is King John. So let's do that. <laughs> Excellent. With the risk that may lead us into another run of history plays, but King John is a great one. Or just um, plays that don't work that well. Or plays that don't work that well. <laughs> that time and Titus. Um, we will see you in a few weeks with King John. You can make sure to subscribe on whatever place you go for your podcasts to know exactly when the episode lands in your feed, though hopefully it will be on a more consistent schedule than we have been. Um, though actually we're going to do one more episode and then we will have our Christmas special. So there's a little bit more disruption on the way, but you know, uh, you can follow all those disruptions on Instagram. At this Shakespeare is gay. We're on Twitter as long as it lasts at this shakes is gay. That's S H A X. And we'll see you soon. Okay, bye.